You're listening to Europe Calling with Terry Whitehead and Vince Tracy. All the news from Spain and the UK. Things you might have missed. So, a very good day to everybody listening in. It is absolutely as hot as you would want it to be. And in some cases, probably a bit too hot. But whichever way, um, we're not far off 30 at the moment. It's a little bit of wind beginning to get up. It always does about this time of the day. And um, otherwise, not too bad. Let me go across the mountains and down the A7. And we should get to Alfaz and Terry Whitehead any second now. So a very good day. Welcome to you, Terry. How are you? Afternoon, Vince. Yeah, absolutely Okay, so uh, not very good news. I was looking at this morning in one of the UK papers, probably in all of them, but uh, China vows to support Vladimir Putin over Russia's sovereignty and security on Wednesday, with the two countries set to step up their economic ties, uh, with the picture showing the Chinese President Jinping and uh, posing for photos with the Russian President in Beijing on February the 4th. Now, why they should use that one, I suppose, uh, it's just a bit of maybe um, the dipping in to give us the bad news and uh, not bother looking for any latest pictures. Uh, they say it was the second reported call between the two leaders since Putin launched the invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th and the pair uh, last met earlier in February when Putin visited Beijing for the opening ceremony of the 2022 Winter Olympics. Um, that's the news that really we would not want to hear, really. Um, do you feel the same as me? You could read into that wherever you wish, but um, uh, the, 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 both the both feeding feeding off the uh, the media frenzy that is is following uh, Putin and and Russia. And of course, China have been wrapping their sabers for many years regarding Taiwan and uh, and creating the uh, the islands around the Spratly Islands. I think creating false. Uh, islands to make uh, well to build a <laughs> to build their own islands off the uh, off China in the China Sea, South China Sea. So it's uh, it, it doesn't good to uh, do a bit of saber rattling. Very much like uh, if you back to the Second World War, where Hitler and uh, was it Emperor Hirohito had a pact, Japan and Germany had a pact, but they they never actually met as such. They never met. The two countries never met or say. Never joined forces to do the battle, but of course they were taking advantage of the mayhem in the world at the time, which I think exactly what China's doing at the minute is taking advantage of the mayhem to try and push forward maybe one or two of their uh, their ideas. To um, certainly uh, they're going to uh, attack Taiwan at some point. They cannot leave Taiwan where it is, even though it's 70 years now, I think, since Taiwan took its independence. And now they think you can take it back after that. I don't know, but obviously we have very long memories in China. It's just uh, a bit more cyber rattling, Vince, and uh, two naughty boys ganging up together. I mean, they were firing bullets as easily than that long ago, so uh, I know that they will again. But, but, I mean, these are far from just naughty boys. These are two of the most wicked and evil regimes on the planet. And uh, we might have begun to sort of see uh, Putin in, in a nicer way, but when you actually see what uh, death and destruction he's brought to Ukraine, you can see that really uh, we're not that far away from trying out his other weapons, are we, really? No, but, well, it's no surprise. He's doing exactly what he did in Syria, and the world just turned a complete blind eye to it. What did the world do to save the Syrians from being blasted from above with barrel bombs and God knows what else? Absolutely nothing. And um, so, uh, and it was very interesting for to Russia to uh, help Syria out because it gives them another 
a warm water, you know, some sort of warm water port. They they need to uh, to achieve around the Mediterranean. Obviously, in the Black Sea by taking the Crimea in 2014, and by extending their their land grab now into the Ukraine, it gives them, and hopefully, what they're trying to get, of course, is Odessa, which hopefully they never do, but it gives them more warm water ports, more more control over their. Uh, for their armed forces, shall we say, at the moment. They're all up in Mamansk and above the book. They're going to really get out from uh, above Norway, over that way, which is obviously very seasonal. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's... I keep predicting it'll come to an end when Putin will remain with his third of Ukraine that he's always wanted, but hopefully he doesn't take uh, Odessa, he leaves Odessa to, to Ukraine. But you don't see the evil for China that I see. Uh, I mean, I, I've consistently... I see evil everywhere. I see <laughs> evil well, everywhere. That's fair enough. Some people are very good at hiding it, and you don't really notice it so much. But you can see evil anywhere that, uh, amongst these leaders. These are very dictatorial leaders. They can be very open about their evilness, shall we say. Uh, like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. I mean, he can do all the hell he wants. His country is starving, but he doesn't care as long as he sells petrol. And, of course, Europe is now buying petrol off Hugo Chavez. Uh, especially Spain is buying petrol off Hugo Chavez. So uh, Spain is, uh, on Europe in general, is, is supporting a, a dictatorial regime in Venezuela. You can find no end of countries uh, where this is happening, where these people... Just these, of course, are, are the two biggest ones. The only other thing that I've picked up, uh, which I don't see elsewhere very much, is that... Putin is going to try and rescind the status of the Balkan states, which uh, appeared in a small article yesterday, which nobody seemed to talk about. Um, uh, if he does go ahead with that, then obviously Latvia and uh, Lithuania and Estonia are going to be next in the firing line. If what he is saying, he seemed to be saying that... Um, something to do with if they take away the status of those particular states, then the UN cannot support them through one of its articles. Um, I mean, the, the thing is, it's just crafty sort of... Uh, it, I, I think it's more than sabre-rattling. I, I feel that, you know... Um, he, he's been... He's, God, I, I did some business up in, uh, in, in Lithuania. I've been up to, up there, and it's, it's a Vilnius, beautiful place. Yeah. But it's it, it been, they obviously been, when I was there so a number of years back, they were very concerned about uh, Russia and the permanent threat that Russia poses to all the Balkan states and eventually Poland, of course. Um, but this has been going on for years. I, I, I've just got this idea, this is just more and more pressure for the world to accept the inevitable that he will have that third of Ukraine on the on the eastern part of Ukraine which butts against Russia. He has that. He wants that given to him. Uh, and, in, and, in, and perhaps he'll leave them to have, leave Ukraine to have, have Odessa as their Black Sea port. Uh, he wants that. And I think by putting on more and more pressure and saying more and more things and threatening playing with his nuclear toys, uh, it's, it's more and more pressure to arrive at the inevitable, which I consider that third of Ukraine will be Russian. And he might as well be, because they, they, they're Russian speakers there anyway. They don't really, most of them don't really consider themselves Ukrainians. Um, uh, so, say, let him have it. OK, we'll move on. So the European Court of Human Rights is in the press in the UK today and it's the decision to block the deportation of asylum seekers to Rwanda. Uh, Maybe utterly predictable, this is what I'm reading, but what is surprising is the speed at which it came to its judgment. As the Work and Pensions Secretary, Theresa Coffey, said yesterday on Radio 4's Today programme, I've never known such a quick decision made by somebody at the ECHR, the Strasbourg-based court, which has nothing to do with the EU but was founded in 1959 in the hope of preventing another Nazi-type regime riding roughshod over human rights. It has
has a well-earned reputation for sloth. At the end of 2018, before any pandemic effects, some 10,000 cases awaited an initial judicial examination. Of those, 1,500 had been waiting for more than a decade, almost as long as the 12 years the Nazis were in power. Yet somehow, out of the power, uh, sorry, out of the blue, the ECHR managed to find the energy to spring into action and thwart the UK government's effort to crack down on people trafficking by employing an offshore processing facility in Rwanda. The decision has yet again raised the hackles of MPs who see the ECHR as a highly politicised body using a loose interpretation of human rights in order to interfere in decisions which ought to be uh, the realm of a country's democratically elected parliament. Unsurprisingly, most of the criticism uh, has come from Conservative MPs, but you don't have to be a Conservative minister to fall foul of this particular organisation. OK, um, yes, I, I didn't think this was the particularly best idea that you, you've ever heard to sort out this uh, business of all the uh, illegal immigration into Britain. But, um, you know, this is completely really um, not the way you would expect Strasbourg to step in and immediately offer that um, it was wrong to, to do it. Um, OK, your thoughts on that one, Terry? Well, these are all part of the laws that are ingrained. Britain actually accepts um, in the beginning with the uh, joining of the EU, and it's and there are thousands of these laws that need to be accepted or repealed or you know debunked. Um, I'm not going to say this is one of them. The European Court of Human Rights is, is a very important stabilising uh, uh, organisation, but to as as that person quite rightly said to come to a decision so quickly when they drag their asses for 20 years to try and make, come up with one decision, they can do one in 20 minutes. It does sound more political than anything else. Um, Terry, I what, what would I you or I... That, uh, uh, what would you or I do to solve this uh, ridiculous situation where people are coming across the channel, uh, you know they're not coming, uh, well, they're coming from France, but they're not from France. They are not particularly coming from anything that uh, you can say, yeah, that's a conflict they're escaping. You've got to say that there's just a load of young people who basically are trying to get into Britain. I mean, what on earth does the British government do with this? The, 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 the manner in which they're doing it, i.e. rubber dinghies over the sea, jumping on the back of lorries, hiding in trains, they are illegal immigrants. They are illegal immigrants. Uh, now then, in the, in the 70s, when I was here, for, for a short period, I was an illegal immigrant because it was very difficult to me become a legal immigrant in Spain. Spain wasn't in the EC, and neither was the UK. Uh, Franco was still alive. Uh, and after Franco died, it perhaps got a bit worse, a bit harder. But I knew many uh, uh, young people who were with me at the time who were captured, rounded up, slung in prison by the uh, police and eventually sent back to the UK with, with a, a note saying, do not return. And that happened to hundreds and thousands of people. Now, the same thing is happening now in the UK. There's nothing different since. The same thing's happening in the UK. These are illegal immigrants. Now, you've got, to my mind, you've got two ways. They've come up this way with Rwanda. And you cannot tell me the government didn't expect this to happen regarding you know, a flight being cancelled, although they got very close to taking off. And I think they will perhaps take off with the next one. But I think it's a really good idea it, it, because it, it will eventually work. If you realise you're paying €10,000 to get a seat on the back of a, of a rubber dinghy, which you may actually drown from, uh, to when fight all your way across the channel to get to the UK, and when you get there, stuck on a plane to Rwanda, it's going to start making people think. Now, other than really, all these people now are costing the UK billions, billions to house them, to put up, put them up, etc., etc. Now, you either um, keep the ones that are useful to you, who've got trades, etc., you can use, and come to an agreement with them and give them visas because Britain has 1.3 million vacancies that they can't fill. Um, Britain is basically short-staffed at all costs. Yeah. Um, 
or, or and or you you stick them on a very large boat and you send them across into uh, Rotterdam, ideally, in the ECHR, I think, meet at the Hague or whatever, and uh, leave the boat there. Abandon the boat full of the, the refugees. They why can't... Um, Dutch refugees and European refugees. Why can't the RAF just put them on an RAF plane with military personnel to escort them and do the job? Same thing. It's the same thing. It's, it's, whether it's a, an RAF plane or, or a five-star private plane that used to belong to Elvis Presley, it's, it's still the same. You are taking, sending people out of the country who, who are considered to have refugee rights, and I don't believe that is the case. Uh, apparently, I, we, all, we always thought your refugee status is when you escaped from the country you were escaping from, and you could prove to the first country you set foot in that you were an oppressed individual in that country and you were seeking refugee status. Apparently, it doesn't have to be the first country. Obviously, it's not the first country. I don't know how many countries they get across to arrive at Calais, but the French government aren't doing anything about it. They're not bothered. They're quite happy to see in the back of them. I would stick them all on a boat and sail it straight into uh, Rotterdam Harbour and abandon the boat, abandon the ship. You can get thousands on the ship. It now becomes a, an EU problem to sort out, doesn't it? Yeah. Instead of using a rubber dinghy bits, we use a nice big uh, old cruiser that we don't need anymore. I mean, what a shame we're talking about uh, humans when we're doing this. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm heartless, but at the end of the day, if I try to go anywhere without my papers, I've got to have my papers with me in Spain. If I go to the airport to try and get to uh, to Britain, then obviously I've got to show passports and everything. So I better move on well, because. What you have to do, Vince, is throw your, throw your passport away when you get to the UK and say, I haven't got a passport. And I go, well, we know who you are because there's a manifest, so we know you did have a passport when you got on the plane. Uh, but anyway, but uh, and try it that way. I did know somebody who did that years ago, uh, a retired English uh, guy. He was actually an ex-chief um, inspector. He, he literally did that. He literally got to Heathrow or Gap, whatever it was, and just lay down on the floor in the uh, in the customs area because he was in. He had a terrible uh, back pain and stuff. And he couldn't get itself seen to here in Spain, for whatever reason, I cannot remember. And they wouldn't let him come back to the UK. So he just lay down in the customs hall at, uh, let's say, Gatwick, for argument's sake, and, uh, until somebody actually attended to him. OK, so, Terry. Uh, a drastic, sometimes you have to take drastic action. If, if countries are going to be so pedantic and stupid about this and not control it, uh, you can thank Merkel for that, Angela Merkel for opening the gate. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure Germany's really happy with the hundreds of thousands that they've got. As are Sweden and Norway. They're really pleased with it. Um, we shouldn't be painting everybody with the same brush. We're painting these as, uh, as almost like criminal individuals, but they are illegal immigrants. There are legal ways of entering any country in this world, and if you're escaping from your life from a country then surely you'd be very glad to sit your bum down in Greece would you not yeah uh, as your first country you've escaped to absolutely you know or, or Croatia or whatever it is or Turkey uh, surely be really happy than to go whole way across the whole of Europe to get to Cali and then risk your life on a rubber dinghy yeah, there has to be a reason for it there's a lot more tell yeah. me it's because they have relatives in England if I've got relatives in England they're the ones who come on the boat half an hour ago yeah Okay, I've still got a lot for you to do today, so I'll um, oh. get on next one. Okay. okay, so we move on to Spain and introducing a new draft law aimed at cracking down on prostitution. The proposed legislation will punish those who financially exploit prostitutes pay for their services or knowingly provide premises for the practices of uh, prostitution under the law citizens will be fined if they pay for prostitutes while pimps or procurers face prison terms of between three and six years clients could also face jail sentences if the prostitute is a minor but the bill would not make uh, prostitution illegal in spain one of the world's leading markets for the practice Medicos del Mundo estimates there are some uh, 350,000 women in prostitution in Spain. 80% of them are foreigners without legal papers. 
Um, online adverts for prostitutes are also a common sight in Spain. The new draft law was admitted to the lower house of Spain's parliament on Tuesday evening ahead of a, f- a vote in the coming months. In a democracy, women are not for purchase, not for sale. This is Adriana Lastra, the Socialist Party's Deputy Secretary General. People who turn to women for prostitution participate directly in the network that shores up this serious violation of human rights. And some political parties and experts have argued that Spain should regulate prostitution to protect sex workers from being further exploited by traffickers. The socialists say the bill is aimed at banning pimping in all its forms and offer prostitutes protection as victims of a crime. Other European countries, including France, Norway, Sweden and the United Kingdom, have introduced similar laws that punish people who pay for prostitutes. Right, I don't know too much about uh, some of this um, because obviously it's not my expertise. I'm not suggesting for a minute it's yours, Terry. Um, But, um, (laughs) you know, uh, it, 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 it can't be a bad thing if they are addressing something which... Is a big surprise when you come here for the first time. I mean, it's just so open that you know it's quite surprising. You know, but by all means, uh, buy a deck chair and sit down and have a parasol there, short of a price list and description of tasks involved. Um, it's ridiculous, really, isn't it? Yeah, I've always found that a bit crude, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, to see the. A, a, a woman sat in the deck chair on the side of the road like, with a parasol over it, as you say. So it seems to be. Generally speaking, they're quite presentable young ladies, but apparently when you do pull in, you're taken around the back and there's some old hag at the back who's going to uh, supply you with a service. It, it, that is the word, Vince, it's a service. Uh, I, I have no problem with prostitution. I don't think I've ever been with a prostitute in my life, so you never know. Um, not willingly paid for it, shall we say. No, uh, <laughs> It, it, it's a service that presumably needs to be supplied. It's never bothered me. But there are some people who perhaps are, are happier, more contented having, having cold sex, shall we say, rather than a, than a loving sexual relationship. Uh, I, again, I repeat, I have no problem with it. What I don't want is in my face. It doesn't need to be in my face. Uh, and if it supplies a service and it's controlled uh, and people don't get hurt by it, when you say like more than half the, the prostitutes apparently in Spain are now foreigners, uh, and we can probably think maybe they're not there. Um, well, they're for money, aren't they? By uh, by their own volition, then that that is obviously something terrible. That is shocking. But per se, I don't have a problem with prostitution, and it's been been legal all the years I've been here. There's uh, an area where my office used to be. There was seven or eight brothels. In fact, there was an office. There was a brothel right next door to me. I used to pay the lads on a Friday afternoon and some of them are disappearing there and the wages would be gone by Friday night. But uh, it, it's, it, it was accepted and it's not a, I don't think it's ever been a problem, but I don't see why they're making it a problem. I can see them needed to control it for the reasons I've just said. There's no doubt about that. It has to be controlled if it's uh, women have been coerced and, uh, and bullied into uh, having sex for financial purposes to supply a pip with his, uh, his little gotten money. Then that is completely wrong. Well, people um, tell me, I don't know whether or not this is true, but people do tell me that, you know, it was at one time perfectly accepted that a, a man has a mistress and the wife sometimes would drive him down to the brothel and leave him there and call back for him. Now, you know, is this just gossip or uh, is it true? What uh, do you think? I don't know any woman would actually do that, Vince, to be honest with you. I certainly not don't. Not about receiving a knife in your back or driving you down there and she's off to see her boyfriend on the way back. Uh, no, but it was a tradition uh, in many villages or larger villages that there would be a village prostitute and she was never a threat. It was sexual pleasure. Uh, and the husbands would be visiting her for sexual pleasure. So she was never a threat to the family. It's not an affair. Uh, and I suppose if you can accept that. Uh, or very good. I don't, know if, I don't know if the boot was on the other foot, if I could accept that, to be honest with you. But uh, that's the way it used to be, and that's why prostitution became an accepted part of society, but it's it's been completely commercialised now. Uh, and I think probably more than anything else, the government want to stake in it. Hmm. 
Well, that's usually where the government would would want to come in. One of the five-letter words means money. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Terry, um, let's go to the next one then. Stand by. Okay, this is new government, uh, UK government research identifying clear links between loneliness and mental health distress. New research finds a direct two-way link between the impacts of loneliness and greater mental health distress. And research also finds that young people, especially disabled people and the LGBTQ community, are at higher risk of chronic loneliness. Ministers across a range of government departments to launch a renewed effort to tackle loneliness as part of a national recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. The findings, which coincide with the start of Loneliness Awareness Week, analysed mental wealth, mental health wealth and well-being and the um, impacts of loneliness over a sustained period with results showing that chronic loneliness suffered a uh, sorry played a significant role in the onset and continuation of mental health distress the analysis also shows that mental health distress can play a significant role in the onset onset and continuation of chronic loneliness chronic loneliness is defined as people reporting they often or always feel lonely uh, you think this has been written by about an 11-year-old. Uh, that's why I'm stuttering a, a bit over it. It suggests that targeted early intervention may play a more significant role in combating the effects of loneliness on mental health in the short term. The Minister for, for Civil, uh, Civil Society and Youth um, will now bring together ministers from a range of government departments to drive forward a renewed effort to tackle lon- loneliness. The group will develop a delivery plan which draw on this new evidence and set out new government action on loneliness early next year. Uh, looking at that very, very quickly and taking mm. a, uh, one side the, the fact that it was written really badly, um, I've got to say that the biggest loneliness is would appear to be quite overlooked there, which is the loneliness of old age. True enough. Uh, I can fully equate with loneliness... Uh, exaggerating or bringing on a mental depression um, I, I hate being on my own I really do um, I, I thrive on company I love company yeah I love company I like a bit of banter I like a bit of chat on the other hand my wife is very very happy to be on her own and if I'm away on a, on a business trip somewhere for two or three days she's very happy to sit quietly on her own doesn't feel the need to go out whereas I would when she's away, I feel I need to go out and have, just have a bit of company. Now, in Spain, you see, the, the, the every bar in every village, or put this way, where, uh, there's always a bar in every town and village that becomes a social centre of the village. It's you, When you go in there in the afternoon, you're hard-pressed to get a table because it's occupied by, by old folk playing uh, dominoes and cards. And, you know, out of about 30 uh, pensioners in there, you might see two drinks. And, and a perplexed uh, barman stood there scratching his head because there's nothing to sell. Uh, oh, sorry, there's, there's nobody to serve. Mean, meanwhile, his, his electric lights burning and the heating's on and the rest of it. They became the social, the bar become the social centre of the village. Likewise did the pub on every corner in the UK years ago, which on my recent trip to the UK over last weekend, all the old, all but one of the old haunts that I used to go to become fast food, uh, you know, Burger King, McDonald's, Nando's, whatever, fast food institutions. So where's the, where's the sociability gone of, of those places? They were the places that I would migrate to uh, two or three nights a week down to the pub for a couple of hours, have a chat with a, chew the fat with a couple of guys and then wander back home again. Now you, Now it's not there anymore. I, I predict a rise in mental depression caused by McDonald's and, and Burger King. There you go. <laughs> if you look at that article, I mean, for me, the key area is that it's this LGBTQ lot again, because unfortunately... I when you said that. Why the hell is that to do with him? <laughs> Why should they be special? Well, exa- exactly. Why should they be lonelier than other people? Well, that... to me, quite the opposite. There's always crowds of in the street with banners. 
Well, I would imagine one of the reasons is because they're a bit fringe to start with and then they go away to try and accentuate it and make themselves look even more friend, uh, friend uh, unfriendly um, so that eventually, you know, you'd, you, you would say to your kids, oh, keep clear of them, you know, because basically you wouldn't want them anywhere near sort of ordinary folks because they don't seem to operate in ordinary ways. And yet... To be honest with you, it's myself as a diehard heterosexual, I, I feel that I'm on the fringe now. I feel, I feel that it's me that's in the minority. That's the impression you get. I mean, it happened to Gay Pride Week, I think, in the, in the UK when I was over. Uh, you know, I'm still waiting to see uh, Heterosexual Pride Week. But apparently they can't do that. That is illegal to do that. You can't have an I'm straight uh, 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 march through the town. <laughs> that can't happen. That's illegal. So... Welcome to democracy. I can't work that one out at all. They just run that by me again. But they're lonely. I don't think so. I think. Um, I mean, it, it's only a question of perception, I suppose. But um, it's almost like you see. We are the fringe now. We are the people who basically, you look around society and everywhere you look are people who are either LGBTQ or uh, gay or whatever, and normal people don't exist. Now, either my my eyes are totally deceiving me, or that's not the picture I see. I see many, many young families. I see many older people who seem to probably be more uh, receptive for somebody to talk to them. Uh, and I only see one or two weirdos who walk around. Uh, but, of course, you can't say weirdos these days because if you do that, then somebody is going to wake up and start having a go at you. But realistically, what on earth are we doing making everybody suffer for the few exceptions that we can do nothing about. Well, being normal is wrong, apparently. That's all I can say. Uh, uh, being abnormal, which means you are not normal, which means you are not part of the average of society, is the way to be. And certainly, if you want to get on in the uh, in the media world, if you want to get a job in the BBC, have a leg off, um, have some sort of uh, disability of some sort or other, Certainly being gay is, is a hell of a plus. Uh, I'm not really thinking of... I don't know if I go that far to get a job at the BBC, but uh, it, it's, it's certainly quite a, a, a way of getting forward in life, tongue-in-cheek, I can mean. But, um, but it, it, obviously it's awful when people are dis- disabled. But you do get that impression. Um, I think I think in a general... That we, we are the ones that are a minority. Uh, and, and, hang on. But there never was sides. All of a sudden, sides are being taken. Yeah. Lines are being drawn in the sand. Thing. Yeah, but you're not a line. You're not this or that anymore. You're this, 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 that or that or that or this or that or that or that. Or that. You know, times a hundred. I don't know what door I've got to go through anymore. No, I'm well, a bit confused myself. That's how I get. And um, when all's said and done, if. You see somebody in the street who is maybe uh, disadvantaged in whatever way you want to take that disadvantage. If you've got the time and the ability and you have a chance to help them, I'm pretty sure you're like me. You would go and do whatever is necessary to assist that particular person. But sometimes, you know, these people make it very difficult for you to offer any help because of their attitude. So... You know, I mean, the, the biggest gap for me is the loneliness of old age because you can't do anything about that. Me and the missus, when one of us goes, one of us will be quite happy to be on their own. Another, The other one of us won't be very happy to be on his own. Uh, I'll tell you that much. Um, I won't like that at all. Yeah, uh, I feel the same. The end of me. No, I, I'm, I'm a social person and I need it. I, I, I like to be uh, amongst other folk. Um, but but uh, my wife would say it's quite happy to be on her own. Yeah. Certain, I mean, certainly in my case, in other words, going along from the original idea of, 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 of depression, etc. Yeah, it would. It would affect me if I was on my own, and certainly as an older bloke. And you, if you're an older bloke, you, 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 you're better with your friends. Yeah. You're alive still because your friends have gone. Uh, and I was very happy to go to a wedding this this uh, this weekend and be with me two of my grand, great-grandchildren. I two of my great-grandchildren and my grandchildren. But it was a very nice weekend for me. Good to to, to be with them. They mm-hmm. are the future. I've had my life, uh, but but what is left of my life, I don't want to be sat at home on my own. I need to be out there doing something. 
Okay. And I feel very, very sad for certainly in the UK, shall we say, because the weather's going to keep most people in anyway, isn't it? Nine yeah. times out of ten. It could be cold or raining or both. Yeah. But at least here we've got sunshine and uh, and, and Spaniards are very affable. Uh, they, they are. They love having a chat. They love a chat. So if you speak Spanish, you're <laughs> in the right country. Okay, Terry, here's the next one. It's Europe calling with Terry Whitehead and Vince Tracy. Items in the news that you might have missed. Europe calling. Okay, we're looking now in San Javier ITV, uh, ITV Center, uh, the the old, um, what do we call it, the MOT? uh, MOT. Yeah. Uh, the Guardia Civil arrested 17 employees of a vehicle technical inspection uh, station in San Javier as alleged perpetrators of more than 1,000 crimes of false documentation, 1,800 uh, of computer damage and belongings to a criminal organisation. The search carried out at this station has resulted in the seizure of four computer storage devices corresponding to the different inspection lines and the station's computer server, as well as the relevant documentation. And uh, this particular seized car was allegedly being used as a wild card, replacing those that were unable to pass the emissions breaking of fuel tests. The investigation began last year when officers from the Traffic Analysis and Investigation Group of the Traffic Sector of the Guardia Civil in Murcia became aware of possible fraudulent practices related to the technical inspection of vehicles. The subsequent raid revealed that a few days before the officers arrived to carry out their search, all of the files stored on the computer system had been deleted. However, practically all of the deleted files, a total of 60,588, and of the modified files, a total of another practically 2,000, have been recovered through computer forensic techniques. The Guardia Seville, in addition, have carried out a detailed study of more than 30,000 files, and the inspection reported uh, the documentation includes a high number of vehicles that passed two technical inspections on the same day, the first with an unfavourable result, therefore failing the inspection, and the second with a favourable result, therefore passing, but with clearly insufficient time to correct the defects found in the original examination. The detainees, the effects and the vehicles seized and the results of the investigation have been made available to courts in San Javier. So, um, getting your car through the MOT system here, it normally is quite good, actually, um, what I've found. You know, it's quite well organised, uh, but this lot had obviously uh, sussed it out well, hadn't they? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's one I can't go to anymore. Um You've just reminded me, I've got one of my vans, I've got to uh, do the MOT, I've just realised. I've just made a note while <laughs> Good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're quite strict. I just I take my car through. I mean, even new cars. I mean, three years old, they've got to go through. You have to have an MOT at three years old. Uh, and then five, mine's just five years now, since that MOT. And they really are quite strict, I must admit. I thought I, thought I was looking at them before it was going to fail me, but no, it passed. But uh, they were very strict. Um I looked at everything. I was quite impressed. I must admit, I'm very impressed. But, um, yeah, these things, no doubt, go on there. It must be wide open to the UK. At least these, in the here we, in Spain we have sensors. In England, I mean, virtually any gauge can be an MOT testing station, can't it? So I'd imagine it could well be more, more, uh, more going on more in the UK than here. So in a general sense, is it something that um, you would find very rarely going on or is it something that you would expect to find a lot more of once they look? I don't know. Um, I, I've, no, I've never heard of it myself personally before that this has been going on um, at all. But um, why? Uh, I mean, I've picked on this place in San Javier. I mean, if it is going on there, imagine it's going on everywhere. But um, it seems that they're going at it in quite a large way down there, if that was the case. I mean, how can you keep these things quiet? You can't, can you? No. If I know there's an ITV station that that will pass any old van of mine without no questions asked, then it must be very tempting to send your van down there. But that has to be common knowledge. 
Yes. I would think so, so yeah. Why isn't it closed down? So, oh, yeah, I'm mm. amazed it's gone on so long, really. Okay, uh, let's see what we've got for you next. Okay, that uh, lovely conditional tense coming up next. Bars and restaurants in Spain could be forced to offer customers free doggy bags. This is part of a new draft law aimed at reducing food waste. Supermarkets and businesses could also face fines of up to €60,000 if they fail to reduce the amount of food they throw away. Spain's government approved the legislation on Tuesday and Parliament must now greenlight it before it can come into effect. If passed, stores and supermarkets would be asked to reduce the price of products they are, um, that they have approaching their best before date. Uh, mechanisms should also be set up to donate unwanted food uh, to NGOs and non-government organisations, I think they'll be, and food banks, according to the proposed law. Spain's Agriculture, Fisheries and Food Minister, Luis Planas, said the bill was aimed at regulating and raising awareness in a world where, unfortunately, hunger and malnutrition exist. These issues weigh on everyone's conscience, he said. Uh, according to the government, Spain wastes 1.36 million tonnes of food and drink each year, equivalent to around 31 kilograms per, per person and a loss of some 250 euros for each resident. He said that only France and Italy in the European Union have already had similar legislation in place and the European Union has recently pledged to have food waste by consumers and industry in the block by 2030, in line with the UN targets. Um, yeah, I think this has got to be a good move forward. I'm pretty sure you'll agree with that. Obviously. Uh, what's always amazed me, Vince, is when uh, Spain, Spaniards eat a lot of fish, and quite a few of the big supermarkets uh, locally have their own fish counter, huge counters of, of, of tons, <laughs> tons of, uh, of, uh, of fresh, freshly caught fish, looking beautiful and fresh. Uh, and you know, you, you, when you see it, you think, "Oh, I'll have some fish tonight. Go have some fresh fish." But I have to think, what do they do with that at the end of the night? You can't really shove that out again the next day. I wouldn't have thought. So where does all that fish go at the end of the night? I've never asked the question. Possibly, because I don't want to know the answer. Um, uh, but, of course, we're all guilty of this. We expect to walk into a supermarket and see piles of fresh vegetables looking really, really nice and straight bananas and shiny oranges, because that's what makes us buy them. But if you haven't got piles of them, then you're thinking, well, these must be a rot if these, there's only a few of these left. So, again, there must be, by nature, uh, piles of, of fresh produce that is binned out every day. And I don't think it'd be too difficult uh, for a concerted effort to be made by some enterprising company or companies to collect this produce and reprocess it in a manner that's not going to be detrimental to the finances of the supermarket that's wanted to sell it but has ended up having to give it away. That doesn't have to happen. So that there's got to be a way of doing this. I mean, food banks are the first thing, of course, that spring to mind. Um, but I think there's only so much you can, you can give to a food bank. I mean, you consider how much fresh and inverted commas produce there is in the supermarkets here in Spain. And, and, and what's done? What, you, they never run out, do they? It's never empty shelves at the last second before closing. Never is. There's always tons of the stuff. Mm. So it's always very worrying. Um, where that now my, my wife is, is she looks at, at uh, sell by and best by dates of everything, picks up a can, she's looking for the date. She'll get something off the, off the shelf, she never gets it off the front of the shelf, she gets it from the back because invariably that's got the better date on it. Yeah, so she's very careful what she buys there. But, um, um, we, we're all we, we created this by demanding straight cucumbers and straight bananas and straight carrots. We've created this uh, market, um, uneven market, of, of, and it's a market of destroy. Well, uh, it's all right destroying the, the tons of food that we're talking about, Vince, 
if, if you're saying that if those figures are correct, I mean, these tons of food are being destroyed on a daily basis. That, that tonnage of food is calculated into the price of everything else that's sold in that supermarket. So we are paying for it, not the supermarket. They're not crying tears when that stuff doesn't get sold. They quite expect to chuck stuff out because it keeps their, their shelves stocked while you're in there. So, uh, yeah, it's good. Anything on that basis has got to be good. Got Th to be good. This will probably link in with it because from 2023, um, Spain has announced a ban on plastic packaging for fruit and vegetables weighing less than 1.5 kilogram. Right now, supermarket shelves are full of fresh groceries packed in plastics, from bags of apples and polystyrene trays of fruit to uh, serve to salad kits or even just an individual aubergine wrapped in film. Plastic packaging has become ubiquitous in Spain's daily shopping. For many consumers, sealed packaging gives them a feeling that the food is cleaner, which we were talking about a minute ago, a fresher, protected, and makes the purchase of fresh produce far more convenient but for some people their love affair with plastic has gone too far the new rules on plastic packaging following other European countries such as France Spain is preparing this new legislation in an attempt to cut some of the 2 million tonnes of plastic generated in the country half of which ends up in landfill effective from 2023 so we're only talking next year the new law also aims to encourage citizens to buy loose fruit and veg in their own reusable containers or other environmentally friendly packets. And ecologist groups claim that Spain is the second largest plastic polluter in the Mediterranean after Turkey. So the first question should be, do you think that's accurate? No, no, I don't think What While you're giving that out, I don't, I'm picturing going to the local supermarket, which at my age I seem to be going to more often than I ever did in my life. Must be an old age thing. Uh, but I'm looking now in my mind's eye at the uh, fruit and veg. And, uh, yeah, yeah, they used to be guilty of that. Everything was packaged. My wife, my wife would never buy a package of, uh, uh, of oranges or whatever because invariably there's going to be one bad one in it. So every orange, sprout, potato, tomato gets visually inspected while she's wearing plastic gloves and, and gets purchased. Um, and there aren't many. I'm, if I would say a percentage of our local supermarket that was uh, was bagged and invariably it's, it's sort of like you say salad and stuff i would say 10 percent was actually bagged in the supermarket that i use and i'm surprised when you say um uh, uh high usages or, or, or uh, abuses shall we say of plastics in spain i mean we're all going to the supermarket with our plastic bags that we, you know, never-ending plastic bag that we bought months ago that's falling apart. We don't like to pay the couple of cents or five cents or ten cents that they're going to charge us for a plastic bag because we forgot to take it. We feel embarrassed because we forgot to take our plastic bags with us. Um, and I think, I, no, I think Spain's doing really, really well on that point. I'm surprised that's come out. I don't, I don't believe it. Okay, um, we'll see if there's anything else, because it was quite a long article there. Spaniards put 900,000 tonnes of domestic plastic in their bins in 2020. So it's quite up-to-date, this. Only two-thirds of that was recycled. Despite the population's effort to suitably dispose of waste, every year 3,000 tonnes of bottles, wraps and other plastic makes its way into the environment and the oceans. This is a Greenpeace data now. In Spain, domestic produce is responsible for the largest usage of plastic containers uh, in the entire country. Hang on, that doesn't uh, read true. Uh, I've just done a quick calculation, and according to those figures, I personally, that's me, uh, I chucked into the pot 37 tonnes of rubbish last year in Spain. And my wife did another 37 tons as well. But I don't think we so put they, that they in. really are talking for the backside. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, the minute oh, I... Unless they're including, unless they're including I don't know, uh, factory waste and, I don't know. It doesn't sound right to me. I think somebody's talking for the backside there. Somebody's trying to... Well, the minute, the the minute I going. saw Greenpeace, I thought, hang on, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're getting half a story back, here. Yeah, they love to create stories where there isn't one. They haven't been in the news for a while, so they need to keep themselves there, don't they? i just see what else they've got for us. In Spain, domestic produce is responsible. Yeah, we've done that bit. Pre-packed food, bottled drinks, cleaning products. 
They make up 40% of all plastic-packed items that are produced nationally. Food manufacturers have adapted their products to accommodate consumers. This is Jose Blasquez, and he's a PhD professor and coordinator of marketing studies at the European University of Madrid. Probably never done a decent day's work in his life, I would imagine, but that's just my aside. Smaller families with smaller portions, lots of people now live alone, and also many have a lifestyle where time is very scarce, so the industry have reacted to an evolution in the consumer trends according to a 2019 study by the Spanish Manufacturers and Distributors Association half of Spaniards buy their fruit and vegetables in the supermarket and only 4 out of 10 choose to buy loose instead of packed products I think I'd go along with that one Um, Mm -hmm. 60% of consumers buy ready-to-eat salads once a week and 38% of them purchase packed, peeled and chopped fruits. I'm not too sure if I'd go along with that one, 60%, because you see people Mm. buying far more uh, bulk stuff than sort of a ready-made salad. Anyway, um, I don't know. We'll, We'll go to another article which is... A bit related. In Malagro, in the northern part of Navarra, Florette's processing plant sits in the middle of extensive fields of lettuce, spinach and other green leafy vegetables. It was placed here to reduce the environmental impact of transportation and to ensure the freshness of their product. And workers wash, sort, cut and pack thousands of ready-to-eat fruit and greens every day on site. Packed vegetables like these are in the centre of Spain's new law aimed at removing superfluous wrappings. Florette, who produce 700,000 salads daily, insist that their products are not only beneficial for the public diet, but also for the environment. We've removed 160 tonnes of plastics from our products. All of our packaging is recyclable, and most of our salad bowls are now 100% made out of recycled plastic. This is um, Florette's band and, uh, brand and business development director, Miriam Saralegi. Um, though the products aren't plastic-free, they suggest preparing salads and packing them in plastic uh, saves waste in other way. Um, I mean, if you're going to put the the plant in the middle of sort of nowhere, um, surely you've also got another form of pollution by more vehicles having to go to a place which probably isn't that un- or, or, uh, polluted to start with. Well, traditionally, the greens and fruits are, are, are grown in agricultural land, which is really miles from anywhere. Otherwise, the land is way too expensive, so you're always going to have a transport problem. Uh, but no doubt they have electric lorries now, Vince. I firmly believe they must have that. All the electric power points have got dotted around the countryside. Um, so, yeah, I, could, well, I feel sorry for them. I know the company, so they are. They make a good product. And they're, they're doing their best to use recyclable plastics. You can't do much. I mean, how do you sell a pea? Do you, you want to go buy a spoonful of peas or something loose? Uh, and their lettuce leaves, etc. Their their leaves that they sell. Uh, my wife, that's, that's true. She buys she buys uh, packets of lettuce leaves and that. She very rarely buys a lettuce. She'll, she'll buy well, it's mainly because I don't eat salads. Yeah, so. I think we do the but same. Yeah, you're right. We do. Partner's her buying a lettuce because she's, she's the only one that's going to eat it. We haven't got a rabbit, so she, she'll she'll buy a bag of, uh, of leaves and uh, and use that. And it's all, it's a very good product. It's very good. And if they're if they're using recyclable plastic, I, I think they're doing a good thing. Yeah, I think the trouble really, you see, with academics. They get the academic bit right, but then they don't sometimes give you the impression that they know what goes on in society anyway. Um, But let's be honest, without them, without the research, nothing would ever change. So um, uh, long live these type of things that at least we can look at and uh, decide how silly or otherwise they are. Okay, I've got Mm. one that you might like for the end. I think this one probably will uh, lighten the load. So stand by. Okay, so the British Academy are to feature a large-scale project exploring the accent discrimination as academics argue that accentism is alive and well in Britain in 2022. Uh, Though people form judgments about others on the way they speak, listeners are often unaware of their deeply embedded implicit biases. 
So uh, these guys have obviously been listening. Dr. Robert McKenzie, who leads the Northumbria University Project, said, This is the prejudice that can dare speak its name. We're not allowed to be biased in terms of gender. We're not allowed to be biased in terms of sexual orientation. But denigrating accents is still allowed, he said. You just have to watch an episode of The Simpsons to see the way people from the south of the United States are depicted. It is surprising, I think, that people still get away with it. Dr. McKenzie uh, goes on, for people with strong northern accents, the conclusions are not good. People do think that speakers in the north of England are less intelligent, less ambitious, less educated, and so on, solely from the way they speak. On the other hand, people in the south are thought to be more ambitious and more intelligent. People in the north were also stereotyped as being friendly, outgoing, and trustworthy. Salt of the earth folk. He went on to talk about the negativity towards Northern English speech or the Northern English speaker was more extreme, much more intense than when you're looking at the implicit level. That tells us that at a conscious level, people are less prejudiced than they once were. But at an implicit level, we still have the bias. Right. Um, Is he right, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's still the... uh, Remember the, the programs on the BBC, you have to talk in a certain way to get a job with BBC. Whereas you wouldn't get a job with the BBC if you talk like the Meadow from Birmingham. Uh, it'd be a bit strange, wouldn't it? Like, you know. So, uh, of course, there is. Um, and now we've got the opposite. Uh, I've seen uh, at least sat through painfully two uh, programs, two dramas, where I didn't understand the word. Not a word. One was a, a Cornish programme where the sound was that bad and the mutterings that were going on and the whisperings, you just couldn't catch anything. And another one was uh, a Scottish uh, drama um, where there were very broad Scottish accents. And uh, without a dictionary, there's no way I was going to follow that one. So I'm all in favour of uh, um, spreading our um, uh, the recognition that the UK is made up of different languages. God, Spain is, is a big place, but you understand everybody you, you talk to in Spain. They do have different languages rather than different accents uh, in Spain, but then that's a different thing. But while they're all talking Castilian Spanish, which is a standard Spanish, you understand everybody. And you can't say that in the UK. I mean, if you never heard a Geordie speak before, why, well, yeah, you never you, you're hardly likely to understand what they're saying. Um, and certainly, yeah, the best English, of course, apparently is recognised as being spoken in Edinburgh. Oh. So it's a bit of a strange, uh, strange country that we live in, and it's because it has been divided up that way, Vince, isn't it? When you think back, why am I having this conversation with you? It's because all these accents have, have, have not been allowed to permeate the media. Now they are. So it's me to get off my backside and get to understand some parts of certain accents that maybe I didn't understand before. Um, but it, it is strange that we do have such a wide range of accents over such a small area. Hmm. I mean, it's less than half the size of Spain, when you think about it. Oof, you're joking. Um, it's at least a it, third, it, it, isn't it? It is weird. Hmm. Um, I'm looking at one last uh, thing that he claims, and I don't agree with him. He says that he finds that children with stigmatised accents are less likely to get marks at school People are more likely to be found guilty in court. They're less likely to be offered a job after an interview. They're less likely to be given access to social housing. These things do have real-world implications. I don't think he's right with that. I think that he could have gone back to when we were young, very young, mm. and maybe. But I don't yeah, think... No, I agree with you there. I think he could have been. He would have been right a few years back. I don't think it's true nowadays. No, and certainly, I mean, uh, when it comes to um, getting marks at school, you know, most of the stuff is not oral anyway. So that that really doesn't stand up too well for me. That one. Well, I did have a friend of mine that was marked down because he spelt his own name wrong. <laughs> I do remember that at school. Obviously, if you can't get your name right, tell there's something, something. Well, I've got. I, I mean, I've. I've got to say that um, there's lots of things that, having been a sort of from an educational background when I was working, um, mm. not realizing that when I was actually. Going
going through GCE. Um, you know, I wasn't even aware that they raised the bar up and down just to su- suit the amount of money in the economy. But uh, there we are. I'm afraid we've run out of our hour once again. Well, and and well, I know you're well, uh, you're on a tight schedule as well today, aren't you? I am. Yeah, I've got to get over to our salad yesterday after I stayed, so I'll be getting on my push bike and uh, well, it's a monobike I've got now. I think I've got one of these single wheel ones. Impressed. And, uh, pedaling frantically, trying to stay vertical. <laughs> All right, Terry. Um, so we leave it there and uh, look forward to the pleasure of your company next, you next week. week Thanks, Terry. Bye bye.